Thanks for listening to the Grace First podcast. If you want to know more about us, head on over to gracefirst.church. Or if you're in the Wichita area, come visit us Sundays at 1015. If you have your Bibles, open them to John 4. John 4. I thought about wearing a suit on my final Sunday. No, I didn't. I wasn't gonna... I'm not going to wear a suit. Uh, I wouldn't want the people on YouTube to change the channel thinking they found the wrong one. Um, but as I thought about which passage and what sermon would be my last one, I kind of like even looked up what do people preach on their last Sunday. And there were lots of things and thoughts and ideas out there. Um, there was all these guys that said it should be, you know, this final Sunday of you telling everybody about everything that went on while you were there and uh, encouraging them and this and that, whatever else, and kind of make it this whole deal. And I finally, I don't know what I was thinking, but it finally dawned on me like, that's dumb. I'm going to preach the gospel because it's literally the only things that matters anyway. So um, telling you goodbye is what we'll do later, but in the pulpit, let's preach the gospel. So as we come to John 4, obviously we don't have any preference to John 3. This is going to bug me. John 3, but John 3, he's talking to Nicodemus and he has a conversation with him. Um, you know, and John the Baptist exalts Christ, but there's a lot of information that takes place. And what you have is, in Nicodemus, is a very educated, um, a very well-spoken, a very learned, a very proper, a very powerful, a very respected person who comes to Jesus at night and who wants to inquire about what, what it takes to know and, and, and inherit the kingdom of God. And, and of course, Jesus uses the, uh, you have to be born again. And he's confused and wonders, how do I enter the a womb again and come back out again? Uh, and so he has just had that conversation, and now uh, we pivot, and we kind of see this conversation with someone who couldn't be more opposite than Nicodemus, couldn't be more opposite in every way, not very learned, not powerful at all, not respected at all, uh, and Christ is making a divine appointment to meet with her. Something I've always felt with this passage and always thought about is, man, have you ever had a burden that you've carried? It could be a past sin, it could be a past struggle, it could be a past relationship, it could be the overwhelming accumulation of all those things throughout your entire life, and that burden is so, so heavy. And it never feels like you can get rid of that burden. You can't just cast it off, you can't just say, it never happened, it was never there. You can't just go, uh, this, and just dump it off your shoulders and continue on with life. It literally feels like it's so overwhelming, there's nothing you can do with it. Well, then you and all of us in our sin can identify with this woman at the well. And through the power of Jesus Christ, if you put your faith and trust in him, can identify with her laying down all of her burden because of what Christ had done and will will do for her. So the very first, I'm going to do it a little bit different. We're not going to read the entire passage at once. What we're going to do is read each section as we go through each major point. So the very first point that I want to bring to your attention is a divine appointment, a divine appointment. So we're going to read verses 1 through 10. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. 
Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus' entire ministry was a mission. His entire ministry was to be missional and to do certain things and to accomplish certain things. First and above all everything, it was to do the will of the Father. You'll see it all the way throughout John if you read the entire book of John. I'm here to do the will of the Father. It is my job or it is my goal or it is my heart to do the will of the Father. And he will accomplish every bit of the will of the Father every step of the way that he is going. It is his mission to share truth with these people as he encounters them and as he teaches them. And it is his job to save people from their sins. But here we see he has a divine appointment that would shatter all known barriers and culture for this part of the world. This is a phenomenal encounter that Jesus has. Most of us who grew up in church, you've heard this story your entire life. And again, like I've said before, oftentimes when we approach stories that we've heard so many times, we're like, I know the story. This lady of ill repute comes out. Jesus talks to her. He shares with her. She goes back. Like, please stop and think for just a second and be in awe of the word of God and how we have this story about his encounter with this woman at the well. I mean, the Samaritans were a mixed race. They're part Jew, part Gentile. They actually grew out of the Assyrian captivity and of the 10 northern tribes. And so these people were brought in from Mesopotamia. They interbred with the Jews. And because of this taking place over a course of time, the Samaritan group of people were kind of brought out of that, almost to the point where they couldn't even trace their heritage anymore. So the Jews rejected them because they couldn't even prove their genealogy in connection to the true Jewish line. The Samaritans established their own temple and own religious services at Mount Gerizim, and this only will continue to cause the rift between the Jews and the Samaritans. So intense was their dislike of the Samaritans that some of the Pharisees prayed that no Samaritan would be raised in the resurrection. I'm always amazed at the prayers that these people prayed. They knew all the rules and all the words of the Old Testament, but they didn't know God. Anyone who knows God and their plight in the sight of a perfect holy God would never pray that somebody else couldn't have what they also didn't deserve. And they would pray these things. And when his enemies actually get mad at him later on in John 8, they actually call him a Samaritan. It's a derogatory term. So Jesus is going on this trip. He has to go through Samaria. Now, if he was a proper Jew, a proper rabbi, a proper person, he would have actually crossed the Jordan and then gone north and then crossed back over and would have totally avoided Samaria. But the God who is a salvific God goes through Samaria and encounters this woman. And Jesus encounters this woman is a divine will of God. You do understand that. It is a divine will of God. A sovereignty of God is in play here where he goes purposefully, goes to this place and encounters this woman in this place. I mean, according to Jewish customs, Jesus should not have even stopped at this well. He should not have encountered this woman. He should have never spoke to this woman because 
speaking to women was considered wrong. He's a rabbi. Rabbis didn't even teach women the law. That was considered a complete waste of time to spend your time doing so. And even wives really aren't talked to exclusively in, in, in certain areas in certain, uh, certain, and only in certain ways. So there, just the fact that he's encountering a woman and having a conversation with her as a rabbi is a big deal. She's a Samaritan, so she's a half-breed, and she is completely unclean. And we haven't even gotten to the reason that she's really unclean. She's an outcast because of her sin. She's at this well in the sixth hour, which is noon, in the middle of the day, in the Middle East, trekking across this barren land to go to this well to grab water to trek all the way back again. Nobody chooses noon in the Middle East to do that. It was because of her lifestyle and the things that she had done that she had to go by herself and go get water in the middle of the day. She had been divorced five times and she's exchanging her body for rent. She is an adulterer. Every box you could check for this woman is terrible by the Jews would have been checked. But Jesus, Jesus engages her so naturally and purposefully He's so gracious as he comes to see her, as he is talking with her, as he asks for a drink, but he's encountering this woman. He doesn't learn about her as the conversation goes along. He created her. And as he is speaking to this creation that he knows all about, he encounters her graciously. If you've walked in and you are the woman at the well, honestly, none of us are Jesus in this picture. I heard a sermon this week where a guy tried to say, we're Jesus and the world is the Samaritan woman. No. I'm the woman at the well who needs Jesus. But if you've walked in here and you've been told your entire life or the things that you have encountered make you feel like this woman at the well who should be out in the middle of the day instead of with everybody else because you feel so disconnected, let me tell you, there's a Savior who loves you with intensity that what you've done can be forgiven as a whole. And Jesus engages her. He knew her sin and issues. He knew the stories from the Old Testament that the Jews would have said, the other rabbis would have said, she's a broken cistern. She could never hold water. She is a castaway. But he had come to seek and save the lost. He didn't come to the well to condemn her, but to save her. He also didn't come to the well to affirm her in her sorry state and sin. He came to save her. A lot of people know John 3.16. Very few people, for some reason, know John 3.17. So flip over a page if you have to, if your Bible's that way. And let's look at John 3.17 just quickly. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus came to save her. He came to encounter her. He came in the midst of her sin and and strife, as Romans talks about, that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You can't get yourself together. She could not have gotten herself together enough and been religious enough and put on the right outfit and said the right prayers and done the right incantations and done anything else and then shown up at the well hoping that somebody would show up to forgive her. There is nothing she could have ever done to any extent to make her more presentable to Jesus. She came as she was 
and he encountered her where she was at. He was not there to condemn, but he never hesitated to get to the point that it was her sin that needed to be forgiven. He says, please give me a drink. She says, how and why would you ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? You, You know who I am. What are you doing? Which brings us to point two, living water. Verses 11 through 15. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I love what Jesus says. Jesus often uses visible world things for them to see, to show them spiritual truths. And the thing he says right off the top, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew who it was that was speaking to you, and if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is talking to you and saying, give me a drink, if you knew the gift of God, it's him. She doesn't realize it yet. She still doesn't understand that who Jesus really is. She's kind of starting to get an idea that there's something different about this dude, but he's not quite sure what he really is getting on about. She has come in her shame to draw water in the heat of the day. She's broken. She's alone. Every part of her life has led her to this point. Every sin she has chosen and desire that she has chased in her life, has led her to the place she is in her life at this point. The things that she thought and the relationships she pursued have left her empty and without hope. She does not realize it yet in the conversation, but she needs Jesus. Sin was her issue. Sin is our issue. Until you're ready to come to the point where I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which is all of us. There's nobody outside that camp. We're all together in that, that place. But until you're ready to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you stay in that place. And so she was, sin was her issue, same as it is ours. And forgiveness amongst the Jews for Samaritans, not possible. They could not have begged enough for the Jews to forgive them for intermarrying and having this half-breed mentality. Forgiveness and full acceptance among her own people wasn't possible. But God. The Bible calls it sin, it's sin. The Bible does not contradict itself. So if you're sitting here wondering, well, the Bible says it in the Old Testament, or Jesus didn't say it, but but Paul did. So if Jesus didn't say it, then that's Paul, not Jesus. Wrong. It is 66 books telling one story. It is all the word of God. It is all breathed out. It is of him. It is is inerrant in every way. It is the word of God. So if the Bible calls it sin, it is sin. 
The Bible does not contradict. In a world that would like to say some sins are sins, but others aren't, or that used to be one, or our world is changing. So now that we accept it, it's not sin. Like, like the world's standard of acceptance equals whether it's sin or not. The standard of sin rests wholly in God and his word. And when we come to the face of that, you can be the greatest person or the worst person who's ever walked the face of the earth. Again, all of us can think of somebody in our life like that's the greatest person. If there's anybody going to get in on merit to heaven, it's that person. And for me, it was my crazy Aunt Betty. Crazy Aunt Betty's getting into heaven whether she accepts Jesus or not because crazy Aunt Betty's the nicest lady. She wasn't really, really crazy, but she was crazy fun. So, but she, she was so good, so good to everybody. She gave her life away to serve everybody else. If she did not accept Jesus, she was not going to heaven. I've known some terrible people. I like to pretend I'm not one of those people. But we all can name somebody from history or somebody from our lives. Maybe you've had someone in your life that that's the worst person you've ever known. If that person at some point was broken by the power of the Holy Spirit and confessed their sins and believed in their heart, they will go to heaven. There's no standard of good. There's no scales that will be tipped back and forth. Do you plead the blood of Christ? But God, for transformation, longing for change or satisfaction, that's not enough. There's a lot of people that wish things were better or different. I wish I would have done. I've got lots of stuff in my past that I wish I would have done different, said different, acted different, whatever that it might be. We could hope or want transformation. We can hope or want for things to change and get more satisfaction in our lives but we must come face to face with our, face to face with our sin and what it does. It makes you an enemy of God. In her sin, in all of our sin, but in her sin, this woman at the well was an enemy of God. She wasn't a believer. She didn't know God. She actually practiced even apart from the Jews and the law. She wasn't even in line with the law. She was an enemy of God, like any of us who are in our sin. But when we come face to face as she does with her sin and starts to understand and the light comes on that this might be the Messiah, it changes. Jesus dying on the cross only makes sense when there's a need. The reason that when we come to the understanding of how our sin affects us and how our sin is a front to God, him dying on the cross becomes such an overwhelming sense of a gift of grace to us it makes sense to us that it took a perfect holy gift on a cross to die for my sins because I could never do it myself. But to a world, it's, why would that guy do that? And when you're actually ready to call your sin what it is, which is sin, an absolute affront to a holy God, there is forgiveness if we confess and believe. Ask in faith and it will be given to you. When we see that in verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Ask, confess, believe. Give me this water so I do not have to come out here anymore. We still see she hasn't gotten it yet. She, she wants the water, not because she believes, oh yeah, I get it. You know, I get it. I get the symbolism. You, you're going to give me something else. 
Just like Nicodemus didn't get that he didn't have to re-enter a womb and come back out again. She doesn't quite get the water thing yet because she's still hoping that he gives her this water so that in her shame, she doesn't have to come back out here to this well again. Christ wanted to give her something so much more in eternal life. Never thirst again here means you're never thirsting for God again. I'm never longing for something to fill me. I have Christ in my life. I have eternal life with God to look forward to. The truth is in me. The truth has saved me. So when it says never thirst again, that's what it's talking about. If we drink this water, we will truly reflect someone who has drank from the well of eternal life. We will look like someone who has a new and refreshing spring over and over again in our lives. It doesn't mean that things will be great or perfect or you won't sin. We all still will. But we will look like somebody. We will act. We will carry ourselves. And we will believe and know that Christ is changing us and making us new. That's what she needed. That's what you need. If you don't believe in Jesus right now, if you have never put your faith and trust in Christ, that's what you need. You don't need the next thing. You don't need the next relationship. You don't need the next newest toy. You don't need the job that you're thinking about. You don't need anything you can fill into that list that is of any earthly value. Is not the thing that you need. You need Jesus. Repentance is not perfection. Repentance is the attitude that says, I hate the things that killed the one who died for me. I hate the things that killed the one who died for me. Point three, spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. We're going to read verses 16 through 26. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. She was dealing in religion. Where do we worship? Do we worship here? Do we worship over there? Do I have to sing certain songs? Do I have to act a certain way? Is there certain ways to go about this? Because again, they have created their own temple. And honestly, if you go back through the actual traditions and things of the Samaritans, they've changed a lot of stuff. They actually really are not worshiping in truth uh, and the things that they are doing. But Jesus here has explained to the fact that, look, you're so caught up in the religiosity of what's going on here. You're so caught up in, if I go to this place or go to that place, but you're not seeing the point, which is whom you worship. I mean, he even will use her link to our fathers. She talks about the fathers. They they worshiped here. You guys say go worship there. And he uses that to point her to the father. 
Lord or God would have registered, but Father, Father is something completely and drastically different to her. The truth and spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people. Nor in Jerusalem. So woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He's pointing her, look, forget about the the ancestors. Forget about all that stuff. Your focus is in the wrong place. Your heart is in the wrong place. Um, It's like us coming to church when our focus is not in the right place. Our heart is in the right place. Things don't happen the way that we want them. Well, that's not the music I want. That's not the prayers I want. That's not this what I want. I want to hear a sermon that's going to lift me up and make me sing and whistle and head on out the door and just think that my life is completely fine. Well, you know what? If that's what you're looking for, you're looking for a comfortable trip to hell. Because that's not what we do when we preach the Word of God. There's a Father that is to be worshipped but not by being in one place or another. In our worship, we somehow leave off supreme focus of our worship in of not only Jesus, but the majesty and glory of the Father. We think about Him little and think little of Him. We don't think about the fact that I need to glorify God the Father with my life, that it matters how I pour my heart out and my life out to them. We honor humans but we do not honor the Father with our worship and our heart as we walk through the door. Now, I'm not saying that I can worship Jesus from the sports field. No. Like, you might be able to every once in a while, but if that's your heart, that you're going to be like, I'm going to dedicate myself to doing all these things instead of being at church, you've completely missed the point also. But Christ came in the first place to reconcile us to the Father, not to take away the Trinity as a whole. Not to make it a focus just onto him. Again, it's not where, but who are you truly worshiping is his question. If you don't know, honor, love Jesus and all that that entails, you don't worship God. If you don't fully and wholly turn your life over to him and pursue him, again, there will be struggles, there will be strife, there will still be sin in our lives. But if we don't see a constant progression and growth towards becoming more like Christ, I'm not sure that we're in the right place heart-wise with our worship of God. Any other religion fails because the object of the worship is on a person. The object of the worship is on self and bettering self. And that's not the point. The point of worship is to fully worship God. Samaritans had completely perverted this worship. And unfortunately, I see a lot in our own culture that we have perverted this worship. We've turned it into entertainment. We've turned it into something else. We want to do the newest fads. We want the newest thing. But we don't want to spend time on our face before a holy God praying. Well, that pause was awkwardly long. I can't, I just can't take that. That prayer time was way too long. I can't spend that much time in prayer. This is a really long passage That guy's talking for a really long time. I'm not trying to get mercy for how long I talk. Only those who are born of the Spirit can worship God in spirit and truth. You must come through the truth, which is Jesus. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is the only way that we can receive salvation in our lives. Jesus told Nicodemus, born of flesh is flesh, but born of spirit is spirit. We must be born again, and those who are born again have the spirit within them. 
And when we're born of spirit, we are alive in Christ. I want to read you what uh, one theologian said. When through faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit gives us spiritual life. We are born again. We have a living spirit. We can worship in spirit. Our spirits are alive and we have God's spirit within. Now we can see and embrace truth, the truth, Jesus Christ. Now we worship the Father in spirit, our spirit-given living spirit and in truth. God's supreme truth, Jesus Christ, the sum of all truth. The worship we offer should come from the depths of our souls. I mean, what did you bring in this morning to worship? Did you bring in your sickness, your angst, your pain? Did you bring in your sin? Did you bring in your loneliness? Did you bring in your rejection? Did you bring in the heavy burden that you've been wearing on your back and you just can't figure out how to get rid of this thing? Lay it down. If you are not a believer, then you do not worship in spirit and truth, but you have come today for a divine appointment. It's not an accident. I believe in the sovereignty of God, and you are here to hear the gospel message You can lay it down by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you are a believer and you brought those things in, which we still can do, lay it down knowing that God is faithful and good, even in the midst of our bad. I mean, think about this. We constantly see pictures in the Bible of people who have just come to the end of themselves and who are a complete mess. The woman who pours the perfume on Jesus' feet to... Uh, and, and dries it with her hair. She, she poured out a perfume that was years and years of wages worth of perfume. She's criticized for what she's doing, wasting this perfume. She can't even speak. All she can do is cry, pour, and wipe his feet clean and put perfume on him. She is in worship because she realizes before a holy God, before Christ, that she is a sinner in need of a Savior And every Pharisee in the room who probably just came from the temple had never worshipped truly God in their life, probably. Mary said in Luke 1, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. Jeremiah in his temple speech in Jeremiah 7, You people come to temple, come to church and say this in the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, but you trust in lying words Words that cannot profit. False worship of other things will lead to destruction. We become dead outwardly from our formalism. We're going through the motions. We're praying. We're singing. I'm mumbling the words. I'm a part of it. I show up on Sunday morning. But there's been no heart change. And maybe you are a believer, and then that's where you're coming into worship. Then you are a You are someone who is supposed to be alive in Christ, but acting like a corpse. You're playing dead when you should be living fully in the life that God has given you. Jesus, this people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. This is religion. It's not authentic faith. And God says, I want people who will worship in spirit and in truth. So come with a sense of awe and adoration. He is eternal. He's all-powerful. He is almighty. He created all things. He holds all things. We can't even fathom the tip of his power. And yet he says, I love you. 
I want to save you. I want to have a relationship with you. Turn from your sin and follow me. He doesn't have to do that. An all-powerful God doesn't need you, but he desires to save you. So get away from the modern experiential worship, the popular psychology, the felt needs, the looking attractive without true worship of God, offering a half or false gospel. What can I get out of worship service or church today? It's not about you. It's about worshiping God fully in spirit and in truth. And what's beautiful about this, this mess of a woman who stands before him, she's the first one that gets to hear him proclaim that he's the Messiah. He doesn't do it to the Pharisees. He doesn't tell his disciples. He doesn't tell Nicodemus. He tells this woman. First time, the man you are speaking of, he will tell us these things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. How beautiful is that picture? The one who sat at the well and asked her in her brokenness and sin for a drink was none other than the promised almighty eternal Messiah God. So we come to our final point. Four, indeed the Savior of the world. Verses 27 through 45. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away in town to, and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I have ever done. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know this is indeed the Savior of the world. After two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet was no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. I love that little throw in at the end. Like, they're excited about him for what he did in, uh, at the feast. They have no idea how he just radically changed an entire town of Samaritans. It's funny, the disciples return, and they're marveling. They're still living in the mindset that we don't talk to women, and they're marveling that he's talking to a woman, yet they're not bold enough to say anything to him. And they, they're trying to bring him something to eat, and she drops her water jug and goes back to town. She gets back to town, and imagine her. Remember, we know who she is, and her first words at her is, Come and see this man. Uh, another one? 
Like, what are we on, seven? No, 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 no. This one's different. He's told me everything that I have ever done. Could this be the Messiah? Her view of Jesus had changed. He's a man at a well. Well, he's a Jewish man. Oh, it seems like he's a teacher. Oh, he's a prophet. Well, he might be the prophet. He's the Messiah. With all the others, she understood he's the Savior of the world. Jesus tells his disciples, I have food that you have no idea. My food is literally, I am not sustained on bread alone, but on every word of the word of God. This woman who was at the well, brokenness and hopeless might be like you as you've walked in this morning. And by the time she encounters Christ and sees him for who he really is, as you can in his word and through the testimony of others, her life was radically changed and she becomes the first missionary back to her own people. An entire city is radically changed by an encounter, a divine appointed encounter with a woman at a well who according to everyone, not just in the Jewish tradition, but in her own town, would have been the last person deserving of it. Let me just tell you, if you're here and you think you're the last person deserving of it, Christ is for you. There is no last deserving of it. We're all in the same boat. None of us deserved it, but, but God. I've come to do the will of the Father. Never, never did anything less. There's no greater substance or satisfaction than in the will of the Father for the believer There's one uh, song I love, and I love this line. It says, I'd rather be in the jungle in the will of God than anywhere else outside it. Believer, you're to be a part of this call. This woman didn't hear the great commission. She heard the word of God spoken. She believed that he is the Messiah. And what did she do? I'm going to hide it for myself. No. Who could she go back to and tell? The people who have shunned her and shunned her, and shunned her. What did she know about this truth of the Messiah? That everyone needed to hear it. Believer, everyone needs to hear the gospel. You're supposed to be a part of the call. Well, I don't evangelize. Then you will disobey the Father. The work is not of you or about you. It is for the glory of God alone. so impacted by Jesus that they asked a Jewish rabbi to stay with them. And they confess he is indeed the Savior of the world. The amazing happening of Jesus' trip to Samaria, a surprising spiritual awakening in the town of Sychar, an unlikely woman becomes the means of an unlikely people turning to the Jewish Messiah. What about you? If you're here and you don't know Christ, you might be this unlikely woman, but in Christ's eyes, there's no unlikely woman. Christ came and died for anyone who would put their faith and trust in him. This gift is for you. Well, you don't know my past. You don't know mine. And honestly, I'm not the one who forgives you. Unfortunately, humans spend more time judging you than trying to identify with you and encourage you, but turning you to the one who can save you. Let me show you the one who can save you. It's only Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, we love you. Lord, I love your word.
We have all at some point been sinners in our lives. Some of us in this room have come to the realization of our sin and have put our faith and trust in you, Lord. But I know that some in this room have not put their faith in you. Lord, you are calling all of us unto salvation for those who would put their faith and trust. I pray, God, that today would be the day of salvation, that in the depths of their soul they would feel the calling, that they'd be willing to lay down the sin that they walked in here with, that they'd be willing to understand that there is nothing from your past that could stop you from being saved because of the power of the gospel, the power of Christ to save. Lord, for those in the room that do know you, I pray that you would again in us spark a desire to make your word known to others. Not be like the disciples who are standing hapless by watching this encounter, but to engage. To be more like the fact that this woman knew the gospel at this moment as best as she possibly could. And what did she need to do, Lord? She went and told. I pray that that would be our heartbeat for those in our lives. And Lord, as we enter the time of communion, I pray that we would stop and reflect, really contemplate, Lord, what it means as we take from this table, prayerfully consider, Lord, our lives before you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.